this would be the first time in the court's history that it would say that a business open to the public could refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, or sexual orientation, correct? Yes. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis-Rauschenbusch in Massachusetts. This case was based purely on the imagination of a would-be Christian web designer. There was no injured party involved. And the Supreme Court still ruled in favor of the web designer. And now, Colorado's anti-discrimination law is toast, making it easier for religious conservatives to outwardly discriminate against gay people. It was the sad climax of a dispiriting Supreme Court session. With no actual request from a same-sex couple for a wedding website, the justices nonetheless took up 303 Creative versus Elenus and found for the Colorado web designer anyway. On this week's show, we'll get into this ruling and how a hypothetical case got to the high court in the first place and look at other decisions at the intersection of religion and public policy with Elizabeth Reiner Platt, Director of Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School. We've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope that the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Now, this is very important. The podcast feed you are listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We've got so much planned for the weeks and months ahead, and I don't want you to miss out. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. The response was unambiguous. When the U.S. Supreme Court sided with the anti-gay web designer in 303 Created versus Elenis, Columbia Law School's Law, Rights and Religion Project headline read, Supreme Court Issues Blow to Civil Rights and Religious Pluralism. Elizabeth Reiner Platt is director of the project, and I'm happy to have her with us today. Liz, welcome back to State of Belief. Great. Happy to be here. Thanks. So let's dive in. Uh, A lot of us are still kind of reeling with what happened in uh, 303 Creative. Let's back up for a second and say, like, how did this lawsuit happen? How did this all come about? Sure. So the lawsuit was brought by a major player in the Christian right world, Alliance Defending Freedom. They bring many, many, many lawsuits on all different fronts, and we can maybe get into some of them later. But uh, they are bringing as many cases as they can, trying to limit the scope of civil rights law, and especially civil rights law as applied to uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. 
And in this case, um, what I think you might be referring to is this is a little unusual because the plaintiff in this case, who is uh, alleging that she has a free speech right to deny services, same-sex couples uh, seeking a wedding website from her. She's a she's a design web designer. Um, it was unusual in that no one had ever asked her to design a website for them, um, gay or straight. <laughs> she had never designed a wedding website. And so there were some major issues around why is the Supreme Court even hearing this case in the first place? And I think that ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, took that approach uh, for a very good reason for them, which is that you really have to actually deal with the impact of discrimination when you see a couple who has gone through the experience of at this very important moment in their life trying to access services and being denied. And it's a lot easier to sort of wave uh, those interests away. And, and we can get into a little bit about how the court did that. When there there is no couple on the other side, um, you just have this sort of abstract demand um, and, and you really get to put the website designers need front and center without really thinking about those those other folks who are impacted. Isn't that that's exactly right. I mean, it, you know, it, there's no human on the other side. So it's purely in the theoretical. It's purely in the um, the idea of um of freedom of expression and freedom of religion, which, of course, everybody's like, oh, yeah, well, that sounds right. And and you don't have any of the emotion of the impact. Not to get too sidetracked here, but there was an interesting article that came out like the day before the decision, which was actually the person listed in the lawsuit was a straight guy who didn't even know he was <laughs> included in the lawsuit. I mean, you know, you have to kind of laugh in the face of the the terror of the whole thing. But, you know, talk a little bit about, like, they didn't have a, play, a person at all involved in this. Yeah, and I think that was a really strategic decision because what they saw is that most of the cases being brought where there was that actual human face on the other side the person seeking the religious exemption or the speech exemption lost. Whereas in cases where there was no one on the other side, they tended to win. So I think they they wanted it to go forward without that face on the other side. And what I, what I can say is one of the things that um, I my organization, the Law, Rights, and Religion Project, wrote an amicus brief in the case. And one of the things that we aimed to do in that brief is try to put that human face on the other side and show what the actual impact uh, of a of limiting the scope of civil rights law actually looks like for for real humans. Um, and we did that with a particular focus because we are a religious liberty organization. We did a particular focus on the experience of religious minorities and how eroding civil rights law, far from protecting free exercise of belief, actually really chills religious exercise for the communities that have relied on civil rights law for 50 years to access goods and services in the public marketplace uh, without fear of being turned away because they're wearing a hijab or they're wearing a yarmulke or they're seeking services for a a bar or bat mitzvah or what have you. Yeah, well, this is interesting and it raises a question that my, my first reaction was, okay, how this affects me personally as a gay guy who got married and who has kids like, you know, now we're in the situation where we, which never even occurred to me, which is we could go uh, to someone who we find in the phone book and say, hey, could you take our family portrait? And they could, I think, say no. 
I mean, I, I think that that's a possibility now for uh, someone who's in a, any sort of creative field, which is a very broad swath. But what you're saying, and this is where it really gets strange for me, and, and I am, have honest questions about what the implications are here. What you're saying is there's a possibility that a photographer, let's use that, let's stay with that, could refuse to do a Muslim wedding, for instance, or an interfaith wedding. These yeah, are yeah. honest. I, I really don't understand Absolutely. what are the implications here. I mean, well, first of all, we're, we're going to kind of have to see how this all plays out to some extent. But I don't see anything in the opinion that gives any indication that this would be limited to same denials of service to same-sex couples. I mean, you know, you're talking about the freedom of expression and people hold all sorts of expressive beliefs. So I, I think one one um, moment during oral argument that I would point you to that I found a little bit jaw-dropping, honestly, is if you remember during oral argument, there was a, a lengthy discussion about the hypothetical of a photographer taking mall Santa photos uh, in kind of a 1950s retro style. And could that photographer say, you know, I'm taking kind of, it's a wonderful life inspired 50s photos, and I don't want to take any photos of children of color, only white kids. And, you know, the question to the ADF lawyer was, would that be okay under your scheme? Is that what you're asking for? And her response was, Quote, this court has protected vile, awful, reprehensible, violent speech in the past. So to me, that's a yes. That's right? a yes. Like that, that's, that's a, a yes. yes. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I mean, let's take it a little bit further. There, are, There's a lot of anger. There was already a lot of anger at Christians. As a, as a pastor, this is very complicated for me because I'm kind of like, no, I'm not, don't include me. But there is a lot of anger, I think, in the queer community right now saying, like, you're coming for us? Okay. This is another hypothetical. But, like, could a queer artist refuse to do a photograph of a Christian wedding? Or an evangel. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to really figure out because this feels like a Pandora's box. This feels like if we can disregard civil rights because of freedom of expression, then it further unravels our society. You know, it further kind of fractures us and say, oh, OK, I'm going to choose to, to work with you, but I'm not going to work with you because I, I have a sincerely held belief. So am I is that possible under this re- ruling? Yeah, I mean, it seems like there has to be some sort of expressive hook, I suppose. Uh, I mean, you know, that was kind of what the court uh, hung its hat on is, you know, this is not a denial based purely on identity. It's some sort of expressive, She, you know, she felt that she was expressing something by hosting this, you know, this wedding website. So, you know, I think if there was um, just a flat out, no Christians allowed under any circumstances, maybe that would be a bridge too far. But I think if it's someone saying, uh, I don't support the idea, uh, you know, I have a, a an objection to seeming to support uh, Christianity as a religion, and therefore I want no part of taking, uh, you know, a, a, you know, taking photographs at any sort of Christian ritual, and that includes, you know, a christening or a, a baby naming ceremony or or a wedding or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I don't see how that doesn't fall under the scope of this decision. 
I mean, doesn't that feel to you like a great threat to our democracy? <laughs> like this this sense of um, we're just not going to deal with those people who we disagree with. I mean, that's that's really what you know. I, I remember this has been going on for a decade. I wrote a piece when I was at Huffington Post about like the fraying of democracy. Like sincere, I say it's called it sincerely held beliefs in the fraying of our democracy. And it, you know, this idea that we're going to be able to pick and choose. Because of our beliefs, who we're going to serve, who we're going to deal with, it just feels like this is very dangerous for the project of living together in community. How do you understand that from your vantage point as at your center? And what does this mean for democracy? Yeah, I certainly think it's adding fuel to the fire of our existing kind of polarization that we're hearing about every day now. And um you know, it's, I think it, I think there's a lot of different threads here, right? I think it's the, there's the kind of um, the fraying of democracy that you pointed to. There's the fact that courts are increasingly just giving up on the idea of civil rights law uh, that has kind of protected pluralism for, for again, over 50 years. There's, I think the, the rise of just corporate power uh you know i think what is lost because adf likes to put um the particular owner of the wedding website on you know has splashes her photograph everywhere but this was about a corporation this wasn't about a person and so i think another way to read it is just in line with um for example the the case is finding that money is speech and um that you know, we are going to increasingly protect corporations at the expense of individuals mm. um, as part of kind of the larger beyond just the Christian right, but the larger goals of the conservative legal movement. So, yeah, I think it's really kind of at the center of a lot of different really troubling trends. So talk to me about how you understand religious freedom in this moment. Interfaith Alliance is also, you know, we we take uh, religious freedom as very seriously and and, and try to promote like this collaboration between religious freedom and civil rights. Like how do we put them in conversation with one another? But if you talk to a lot of young people, they will, like, if you say, Oh, we do religious freedom. They're like, Oh, are you anti-gay group? Or, you know I mean? Like it's almost become synonymous with it. It's, it's a terrible thing for the phenomenon of religious freedom. I, how are you kind of navigating this idea of a religious freedom organization that all of a sudden has had religious freedom redefined in a, in a negative way? Yeah, it's it's really sad to hear that, and I, I hear that all the time as well. Um, we know part of the reason why it's happening, right? We have, there's a vast disparity in resources going towards different organizations that are using the language of religious liberty. So we did a study a couple years ago and found that uh, at least th- that Christian right organizations are getting at least seven times the funding of uh, more diverse and pluralistic organizations working on religious liberty issues. And for a variety of reasons, that's actually probably a, a pretty big underestimate of the disparity, frankly. So what we have tried to do is do a lot of work around a a couple things, educating folks on what the underlying principles of religious liberty should be, that religious liberty is supposed to be non-coercive, that religious liberty is supposed to be non-discriminatory, that it's supposed to be democratic, that it's supposed to be about allowing people to 
live and and thrive in a pluralistic society uh, without, you know, fearing their government or, frankly, their fellow citizens because of their faith. Uh, and so we, we've done education. We've also put out a media guide for journalists, really urging people to take a more critical approach to writing about religious liberty issues, because I know I, I don't want to kind of add to the media pile on because I know journalism is a really tough job. But I just got really frustrated seeing things like New York Times articles that referred to William Barr as an advocate for religious liberty when you know, the man supported the Muslim ban and went on public tirades against atheism. So I think we really need media to step up and think a little bit more critically uh, about what the term religious liberty means when they see it being bandied about in lawsuits and in uh, and by politicians who are proposing, you know, anti-LGBTQ legislation and calling it religious liberty le legislation. And uh yeah, it's going to take a, a lot of culture change work. I I also really appreciate you talking about money because I actually think like this is not this is doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not an equal playing field and there is a very concerted, well-funded, mobilized and strategic uh, work out there that's happening. And, you know, we have lots of great people uh, on our side. I'll, I'll, I'll use that term. But but we're, you know, I would say we're on the defensive and we seem to be losing a lot. And, uh, and I, I think we're winning in many ways. I think overall people, you know, want, uh, want this to be a diverse nation and they want people to have, you know, religious minorities to have rights and they want LGBTQ people to have rights, but they haven't connected that to um, the work of religious liberty and why it's so important to invest in organizations like yours, organizations like ours. And, you know, this is just a, it, it's a fact of this moment. And I just appreciate you so much saying it. Can we just take a step back and and ask about you a little bit? Like, what is your background and how did you get uh, into this role and get passionate about this issue when there's many that you could be passionate about? Yeah, so <laughs> uh, I, you know, tell people it was mostly an accident. Um, I was working doing housing law and did not care for it. If I never see the inside of a courtroom again, I will be delighted. Uh, and, you know, had a, certainly an interest in some background in reproductive rights. So kind of the, the fact that the Law, Rights, and Religion Project is based at the Columbia's Center for Gender and Sexuality Law really appealed to me. So I, I came in through, frankly, as you noted, kind of a more defensive angle, like a, an, an overwhelming interest in in preserving reproductive rights from increasing attack including ones based on this warped notion of religious liberty and over the course of a couple of years came to really fall in love with the religious liberty piece of the work and and actually really tried to steer our ship in a totally new direction towards being less defensive taking on a more affirmative vision of what religious liberty is and should mean and how it should be protected uh, and not just constantly talking about what we don't want religious liberty to look like, but what we do want religious liberty to look like. And, you know, fell in love with the with working with all sorts of incredible uh, faith leaders doing really amazing, fascinating work. I mean, the work you're doing here, the work of the sanctuary movement, immigration sanctuary advocates of uh, people of faith who are involved in helping people access abortion care, you know, the folks who sued uh, faith leaders who sued to um, 
provide same-sex marriages based on their religious belief back when that was illegal. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it was it started out as an accident, and now I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Isn't that great? You, I mean, you know, it's like kind of things conspired to bring you here. And I have to say, I'm really excited that we're talking and that we're going to hopefully be working closely together into the future. I think that there's a lot of opportunities and, and overlap and interests. You, you mentioned reproductive rights, and one of the things that's kind of interesting out there and it's just almost being like tested is can religious freedom be used to preserve um, the right to abortion access and contraception access uh, in this moment? Could we use the, you know, in some ways the tool book and say, actually, if we have a right to follow the beliefs and the mandates of our tradition and our tradition actually supports the right to abortion, who is the state to intervene against that principle? Like, isn't that an abrogation of of religious liberty? Have you all been working on that at all or been doing any work on that? We have. You are speaking my language. We did a report called The Religious Right to Abortion back in August that does a deep dive into this issue. And one thing I always like to kind of start out with when I'm talking about this topic is that, you know, I think this really pretty frequently gets framed as sort of a clever legal switcheroo, right? We're going to take these conservative laws and use them for for, um, progressive ends. But I think that the story is a little more complicated in that this is how religious denominations have been talking about these issues for decades. So, you know, I found statements from denominations, from the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, from Presbyterian Church USA, certainly from various Jewish denominations, uh, going back from the 70s and 80s saying uh, reproductive health care is a First Amendment religious liberty issue for our communities. Um, so it didn't it didn't come from lawyers and it didn't come post jobs. This is something that's been happening. And we found uh, lawsuits that essentially make this claim going back to the 1970s pre Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And um, it's also worth remembering, like the Southern Baptist Convention did an amicus brief. For row, pro row, because right. because yeah. it was a diff, it was a freedom of conscience, freedom of belief issue for them, and they understood it as a Baptist uh, organization that that's that that was their call. We'll take another break now and be back with more of this conversation with Liz Platt. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. And please make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast because the feed you're listening to today will be discontinued soon. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. My guest is attorney Elizabeth Reiner Platt. When I got to New York, I, I started um, going to church at Judson Memorial Church in, in uh, New York City. And um, the the minister there, who had been there a long time, actually had been talking about it, I think, in the late 60s. They had been really like you know active in saying, actually, this is coming out of our conscience. You can't say that this is not 
part of our ability to to speak freely. So I I really appreciate you saying, you know, in, in some ways correcting me like this is not a switcheroo. This is going to the a, a long time held belief, uh, including and I mentioned this before on the show, but I'll mention it again. My mother, who is our a Presbyterian and was the reason I went to church and all of this, and she was a activist for um, family planning in Wisconsin when it was illegal. Mm-hmm. And for her, yeah. it was completely aligned and combined. And for me, growing up, like I it just that was just part of what it meant to be, uh, you know, a Christian was also advocating for the right for people to make decisions about their families. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, um, Howard Moody at Judson yes, it was, was one Howard. of the founders of the clergy consultation service, yeah. which yeah, helped people access, uh, it was a group of a national network of, of ministers that help people access abortion care, um, pre-row back when yeah, it was illegal. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'll so, just mention for Howard Moody, you know, I, I that was the church and he was the minister. Yeah. And I had never heard like a real Southern Baptist preacher preach before. So he would preach like serious sort of like, you know, the blood of Jesus. And I was like, ooh, listen, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, sorry, I'm a, a little delicate for that kind of conversation. But he was like a serious religious man. And, it, and, and you know, and, and I loved it because he also like brought that kind of passion to his work, um, you you know, around AIDS and around people who, you know, and this was in the 80s by the time I met him. But, you know, he was like, we're not, you know, we're, we're going to be fighting for the rights of our LGBTQ people. We're going to be fighting for um, HIV, uh, rather intravenous uh, drug users. You know, I part of my ministry there, not ministry, but like my volunteer work was creating clean needle exchanges. You know, mm-hmm. this was rooted in the church's commitment to saving lives. And so I just like, I, I didn't want to kind of go past Howard Moody too quickly because he was, he was the one who sent me up to Union Seminary to go to seminary. I mean, so like this was a major figure in my life. And I'll just like end by saying, you know, with my mother, with Howard Moody, with others, like this is my tradition. This isn't like some weird, you know, kind of I'm like some freak who's in the corner. This is my religious tradition. Will the will the United States government honor my religious tradition in this work? Yeah. So let me take that uh, take us back then to like the actual legal claims being made in these suits. So there's kind of two different ways they're being made. There's some of them are essentially saying these abortion bans violate my religious beliefs and and my ability to make decisions based on my own conscience. And then the other version of the claims are essentially saying uh, these bans are inherently religious laws and therefore violate the establishment clause. So we're seeing both of those kinds of um, suits going on. I think in, in particular, the free exercise claims under the current law they should be very strong. I mean, we have seen a massive expansion of the right to religious exemptions, most notably, I would say, in the court's COVID cases, uh, which found a, a right to religious exemptions, even in the midst of a you know, global pandemic with very serious life and health and safety issues on the other side. So these should be very strong claims. You know, of course, the question is, what are the courts going to do with them? And what are, you know, is our very politicized judiciary going to do with them? And that I think I am um, taking a bit of a wait and see approach. Do, what do we, what's your thought about the Supreme Court? You know, I mean, I think you, you might know that like my great grandfather is on the court and I grew up venerating the court, you know, even though he was in the minority for much of his, uh, his tenure. I mean, right now I'm just like, wow, you know, I can't count on the court 
to protect me. Uh, you know, I mean, I can't. I, I, I'm very, I'm, I'm very um, upset and disillusioned around it. But I, I also, you know, there you go. We have to. It means that we have to be even more active in in the other political realms and other uh, branches of of power. But what? How do you feel about the court right now? And I don't really want to get into like, should we expand the court or not? Like, I know that that's a big question right now. But I actually like. I kind of I'm totally agnostic about it, and I feel like it's a little bit of a, a diversion. But maybe maybe you can correct me. Maybe you can uh, maybe you can uh, convince me. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard time to be a, a you know in the legal field these days, and I might just take kind of the easy way out to this question, <laughs> and I apologize for that. But just to say that I think there are a lot of things. Um, that are just going to be won or lost outside the courtroom. I mean, you're right. We can't count on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, as a, a small thing, I mean, a lot of the religious right to abortion cases are saying they're almost all being brought in state court. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot more activity in the state uh, judiciary than the federal one. Um, and, you know, I think that the biggest areas of, of progress in the repro space right now are happening when we bring the vote directly to the people because abortion bans are extraordinarily unpopular. People don't want to live in a in states where it's it's dangerous to be pregnant. Again, that's that's sort of easy for me to say, well, I'm a lawyer, but it's it's you know, it's not about I, the courts I, anymore. But no. I think that's, you know, I I I, 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 I this is my, that's part of where I'm at is like even though it's legal, it might not be moral. Now, you know, even though it is, you know, possible to d- discriminate doesn't mean you should. It's still uh, it's still immoral and uh, uh, unjust and you shouldn't do it. The Supreme Court is is its own thing. And they've created a little bit of a um, terrible Wild West out there for people to be able to discriminate each, uh, against each other. But it doesn't mean we should. And uh, and and it, in some ways it calls upon the. Um, the ethical mandates of traditions to be speaking out against discrimination, against this kind of um, injustice, because people can do it, but they shouldn't do it. And I, I think that's really important. I, back to like three or three. I, I just saw. I, I don't know if you saw this, but like some hairdresser of all things refused rights, refused to serve an LGBTQ member. I don't know if you saw that. There was a recent article about that and that someone sent me. And I'm just like, is that where we're going? Is this, I don't think that that would hold up in court, but I, you know, oh, I'm a hairdresser, freedom of expression. I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't know what they were, you know, it's just, you know, the, the, the thought of all of this is so depressing and so like feels so against what we should be moving towards right now. I didn't see that, but it almost feels like a troll of, I think it was Justice Sotomayor, it might have been Kagan, but I think it was Sotomayor who, during oral argument during Masterpiece Cake Shop, specifically said, you know, again, we were trying to figure out, well, okay, what is, what is art? What is expressive? Where are the limits? You know, Jack Phillips is saying that his cakes are works of art. So she specifically brought up, well, what about a beautiful hairdo? And so it almost feels like they wanted to you know follow up on that question found some hairdresser i don't i don't know how it went down but no they um, said that's exactly what it is citing free speech a michigan hair salon refused to serve transgender people 
The announcement came days after Supreme Court discrimination decision. So this is on Slate. I think it's exactly what you said. You know, even without reading it, you intuited exactly where people were going to take it. And uh, they may be trolling, but the experience of that for someone, you know, a human being, mind you, people, like not a theoretical, this is now we're in the human realm, um, is terrible. I just can't imagine there's someone out there who thinks, oh, that's a good thing. You know, I mean, I, I, I but there are. And, uh, so, you know, oh, God, it's it, it's so depressing. But but how do you understand, like, what is the legal profession's job here? When religious folks do bad things, <laughs> they're always like, well, what are the seminaries teaching? What are like what? How are they getting trained? How are they like? Why did they come to this like juncture? I'm out of touch. My dad was a law professor, right? So I, you know, and I'm I, I'm way too old to reference him as like any sort of point of reference. But but again, I thought of the law profession as a very high, a way of promoting, hopefully, um, a more just nation. But you know, we have these laws coming down. What is the legal? Pro- you're you're at least situated somewhat adjacent to Columbia Law School. How are they talking about this? I mean, it's really hard. Like I, you, you go into a field because you want to see improvements and you want to make things better. And in the eight years I've been doing things, doing this work, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, and I think you need to stick to your values and think in the long term. And I, I am now trying to push myself to not just think in the next what what cases are coming up tomorrow what com- cases are coming up in the next two years but to really think on a, a 10-year or even frankly a 50-year timeline which is what I think the right has been so good at right it took them 50 years to overturn Roe v. Wade but they never stopped and they used a lot of different approaches and they used a lot of creativity and I think that's our job is to bring the cases that might um, where the the law we want might be in dissent now, but can that dissent become a majority opinion in five years or in 10 years or in 20 years? Yeah, I think and, that's really smart is like to, you know, to 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 keep fighting, to imagine a future. I think that's super, absolutely important. And, you know, again, like, you know, even if I think of my own, you know, great grandfather's experience, he was in dissent for most of his time on the court. And then some of his dissents became majority opinions. So like, you know, we can, we can imagine, you know, good ideas are going to be good ideas and we should stick to our good ideas and we should persuade the population. And I think it's really important what you said. You can see like what's going on in Ohio. They don't want there to be a referendum on abortion. And they're doing everything they can to prohibit a referendum on abortion because they know they would lose a referendum on abortion. And so, like, you know, the, the people's voice is going to come out here. And I, I I remember, like, you know, five years ago, I was when, where I kind of saw where we were going. And I said, there's a whole generation of people who have never lived without Roe v. Wade. And when it goes down, they're going to all of a sudden be like, oh, oh, you know, and it's going to it's going to it's going to change the way they perceive a, a, a right. They never they may never want to use, but it, how scary it is when you can't access it if you need it. And so um, so I just you know, I think that's really important. What are some of the other kind of rights and and um, freedom of religion that you're doing right now at, the, at your institute? Sure. Well, one kind of long-term project that I have been 
tinkering with for a long time and I'm figuring out where I'm going next is I I think another wave of religious exemption litigation that we're going to see is um, attacks on workers and labor rights. So again, this kind of, um, I already sort of talked about the this broader conservative legal movement's goal of expanding corporate power, moving public money to private entities. And I think we're going to continue seeing uh, speech and religion um, being harnessed in suits that will, you know, try to cut down on uh, wage and hour protections, child labor laws, right to union organizing, uh, basically anything that regulates corporate entities in any way. So that's something I'd like to do some research on. Um, another another project that we are um, gearing up for in the next, I would say, year um, or so is uh, we want to create a Black religious liberty curriculum uh, because, as you probably know well, um, right now the religious liberty space is frankly not very religiously diverse and certainly not very racially diverse. And the cases we read, the issues that get discussed, the people who are platformed um, are overwhelmingly white. And so we are partnering with uh, with scholars, including um, theologians, to, to, to really um, aim to tell the story of religious liberty in the United States um, through the experiences uh, and needs of black communities. So yeah. that's another project we have going on. Well, the um, BJC, I think, is a Baptist Joint Committee is is moving in that direction yes. and has just launched a you know a wonderful project with Sabrina Dent uh, at the head of it, and um, and she's been on this show, and I think that's wonderful. I mean, I think it's it's so important because freedom of religion, it it can't just be like you know from this diminishing slice of American population. I think that's one of the craziest things is freedom of religion has become identified so closely with a diminished and diminishing rapidly group of white Christian people who um, who still want to exert power over everyone and claim the mantle of religion when actually the reality is, is the demography of it is that their their influence should be um, they should their their rights of their own rights should be protected, but they should not be able to wield their rights over the rest of us. And I think that that so what you're doing is marvelous. Um, we ask everybody on this show, like, what gives you hope? And I think that, you know, you, you've offered me hope by just giving me a framework, a broader timeline also. But what gives you hope in your work? Yeah, well, I will second the work that Sabrina Dent is doing is giving me hope. Um, and I'll say that I that we are trying to kind of uh, yank the legal field along on the path that she's already started creating. And, and so definitely want to echo um uh, echo kudos to to Sabrina and BJC on that. Um, and I think, you know, I always come back to, and I think this might be honestly the same response I gave last time I was on the show, but I think it's still worth talking about is what, what, what honestly gives me hope is just the incredible work being done by faith-based communities across the, across the country that really um, shows what religious liberty should be and can be for all of us. So, you know, I think about, you know, you mentioned um, uh, 
injection drug users, I think about an organization like Safe House that's saying, you know what our faith looks like? Our faith looks like opening a safe injection site for drug users so that um, they don't die needless deaths because no one's there to call for medical help. Uh, groups like No More Deaths in, in Arizona that's saying our faith looks like uh, giving people food and water so that we don't constantly encounter uh, dead bodies in the southern desert um, who are just trying to cross and, and come for a better life in the U.S. Um, and and that's that's what gives me hope. Yeah, that, I mean that's freedom of religion. I mean that's people following their mandate of their faith. Um, I I I didn't ask you about your own faith tradition. Do you come out of a faith tradition? Does that inspire your work, or do you come at this more from the legal mind and and put that aside, or maybe don't have any tradition particularly, but have a strong moral core? Yeah, I think um, I so I come from. I had a really interesting conversation a while back with someone from uh, the Secular Student Alliance, which I'm on the advocacy board of. Um, and, you know, we were talking about how with Gen Z in particular, you know, they're really challenging us to break out of all these different binaries and all of these different uh, labels and boxes. And so I always felt like I'm a reformed Jew first. It's very culturally important to me. Uh, I was bat mitzvahed. I still go to synagogue on occasion. I do the holidays. Uh, but it's not the whole story. I'm also somewhere between agnostic and atheist, uh, which is very common for Reformed Jews. And so, you know, it's not easy for me to kind of pick a box. I would like to pick maybe two or three. <laughs> um, and so that's where I come from. And I think I think what's nice about that is that I think I see... Um, both the kind of religious and secular communities very well, because I feel like I'm a member of both of them, actually. Um, and and that can be helpful in doing this work. Um, and, I, and I'm able to see faith as something that is complicated and that can operate in your life in lots of different ways uh, that don't look the same for everyone. Mm. I think that's wonderful. You know, I'm having a conversation with Representative Jamie Raskin in a couple of weeks, and he has uh, is part of a caucus in um, in the House uh, called the Free Thought Caucus. And my guess is is that he checks a few boxes as well. And you know, and many people do honestly, like many of us. You know, even those of us who go to church regularly, like myself, we don't 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 assume anything about what I believe. You know, I mean, you know, we, we, we can we can be complicated, but what shouldn't be complicated is our right to dignity. And what should not be complicated is everybody's right to live their life and thrive um, for who they are and how they um, interact with the world and, and, you know, support their family, whatever that family looks like and be themselves, be them, you know, their fabulous selves. I mean, you know, we really we need to nurture a, a country that allows that. So. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. This is very important. As part of our new partnership with Religion News Service for distribution and expansion of this show, the podcast feed you are listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform. 
or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part, both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. The State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week when we'll have the Reverend Dr. Derek Harkins with us. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.